This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Debbie Reed, Executive Director of the Ecosystem Service Market Consortium. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer is helping farmers produce sustainably to protect the environment and feed a growing world. Health for all, hunger for none. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with ESMC's Debbie Reed next. As a leader in the industry, we at Bayer have the opportunity and responsibility to help address the challenges around sustainability and ensure that we can all thrive while using our planet's resources in a sustainable way. Sustainability is an integral part of our operations, and we believe that farmers and agriculture can be a part of the solution to many of the planet's biggest challenges. Whether that's helping growers utilize new technologies to get more out of their land, or incentivizing carbon-smart practices such as strip-till or no-till and planting cover crops, we're committed to innovate, grow, and partner with farmers to help shape what's possible and further our vision of health for all, hunger for none. For more on Bayer's sustainability efforts, visit cropscience.bayer.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The Ecosystems Service Market Consortium was established from the Noble Foundation's work on improving soil health. ESMC Executive Director Debbie Reed says society's goal for the atmosphere is an opportunity for agriculture and forestry. Reed says ESMC wants to establish carbon and ecosystems markets as a mechanism to scale beneficial outcomes from agriculture. I think atmospheric carbon emissions and, and greenhouse gas emissions are a common theme right now. And agriculture, while not a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, is different from most sectors in that it can both increase soil carbon sequestration to actively remove carbon from the atmosphere as well as reduce existing greenhouse gas emissions. So we call it both a source and a sink. And agriculture and forestry are really the only two sectors that offer that. So there's a huge potential opportunity for agriculture to contribute to climate change mitigation, but there's huge additional benefits that come along with all of the activities that reduce greenhouse gases or increase soil carbon from agriculture have benefits for water quality, uh, water use conservation. Uh, they improve crop yield and productivity. So there's just many, many reasons that there's been such a huge interest in agriculture's role. In April, you told the North American millers you wanted simplification in sustainability. Simplification in terms of how we account for and track and quantify these outcomes is required. Right now, uh, the, the standards for how a company in particular, for instance, is allowed to track and quantify um, their changes in greenhouse gas emissions or their entire sustainability footprint is really complicated. Um, and the more complicated we make this to do, the harder it is for a company to actually meet those requirements um, and the less likely we are to see them succeed. So one of the things we're doing is with the standard-setting bodies and organizations is trying to bring, I think, a reality-based approach to both accounting but also how companies can make claims 
to show how their investments are actually increasing um, soil carbon or reducing greenhouse gas emissions, particularly when they're doing it in a voluntary context um, and doing it by working with their supply chain. So if they're working to do something that is not a regulated requirement but that all of society benefits from, we want to ensure they can succeed. So making this... Um, not necessarily easy, but making it simpler and um, ensuring that companies can actually do this and sustain their investment um, is to everyone's benefit. Am I safe to say that the goal is to get the carbon from the atmosphere and into the soil? Yes, that's funny. You say that. When my daughter was in first grade, she was asked, what do your parents do? And she said, well, my daddy takes carbon out of the atmosphere and my mommy puts it in the ground. <laughs> right? So, very funny. My husband works on energy technologies and I work on ag, both um, from a carbon point of view. And But yes, that's exactly what agriculture and soil carbon can do. Historically, we released a lot of emissions, soil carbon emissions, when we actually converted lands from other natural uses to agricultural production. And as Dr. Lal, Ratan Lal from Ohio State University likes to say, all of that can be put back in, right? So we're reversing our earlier um, emissions, if you will, of soil carbon, and we can put them back and we can improve the health of the soil by doing that. We, of course, have limited agricultural and farm and ranch land uh, left in this country where we can do that. So it's important to both protect what is in those soils right now, so protect existing soil carbon stocks and prevent their release, but also put back as much as we can, um, you know, stuff the carbon back in the ground. Is this debate about carbon and carbon only, or how do the what is the spectrum of greenhouse gases and which ones would bring us the best result from a protecting the atmosphere standpoint, and which is better uh, from an agricultural standpoint? There are basically three greenhouse gases that we are um, tracking in agriculture. Carbon dioxide or carbon, if you're talking about soil carbon, methane, and nitrous oxide. When we talk about carbon markets, uh, we are really talking about all the greenhouse gases, and they're all reported on what is called the, the carbon dioxide equivalent. So nitrous oxide is far more potent a greenhouse gas. It's 300 times more potent than uh, carbon. So uh, every ton of nitrous oxide you reduce, you basically get 300 times more credit. So you see that um, that's a highly valuable one. Methane is about 26 to 28% uh, uh, or times higher than um, carbon in terms of its global warming potential. So those two actually on a per pound or per ton basis, you get more bang for the buck when you actually reduce those emissions, even as compared to soil carbon sequestration. There's a lot of focus right now, and I like to say soil carbon is a shiny new object, and that's because we have to do everything we can to both increase soil carbon and reduce other greenhouse gases to really prevent some of the dangerous climate change interference that we're seeing, right, that are leading to floods and and droughts and increasing storm cycles. There are differences, and I think what we will see over time is greater recognition that the opportunity for both nitrous oxide and methane is at least as good as, if not higher than the opportunity with increased soil carbon. Um, methane for most, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, 
is largely from livestock production operations. So, you know, from uh, livestock, both belching and gas. Um, but nitrous oxide is largely from fertilizer use and fertilizer uh, use changes. And we're starting to see new technologies that can really dramatically reduce both nitrous oxide and methane. So uh, there's a lot of focus on soil carbon, but there's huge opportunities from nitrous oxide and methane. From the pilot projects that you know that are ongoing, do you think these carbon markets are going to be based on a commodity, carbon credit, or on a stewardship practice, perhaps? Yes, in the markets, I think they're basically going to be based on credits or quantified outcomes. We've really moved in the markets away from practices and payment for practices and towards actually paying for outcomes. And it's important for many reasons, but one is in a market because you're not you're not selling a tangible product, right? You're not pouring something into a bag that trans, uh, you know changes hands physically. We really have to do a lot of due diligence in ensuring that that product exists if we're going to sell it. So uh, there's a lot of work in quantifying and verifying what those credits look like. If you're paying for practices, it's un- it's far more. Uh, uncertain, right, what you're getting, whether you're actually getting the the outcomes that you're looking for. So the markets are much more outcomes-based and credit-based, and a credit literally represents some um, unit of benefit that we have been able to quantify with enough certainty to, to say, this is what you should pay for this credit. What's the energy behind this climate push now? Is it from Washington? Is it from uh, a a consumer demand area? Uh, Is it companies that are trying to improve their statue and in front of their customers? Where's the energy and and what is the interest in the market? Yes, the energy is coming from the private sector right now. So we are seeing huge private sector demand, which is why we're operating in this, you know, the private voluntary market space. Um, Companies have been for a long time investigating their inventory, their greenhouse gas inventory, their entire footprint, both within their facilities and within their supply chains, and taking on voluntary commitments to reduce them. And they're doing it for two reasons. One, you already alluded to that, and that's huge consumer pressure. Consumers want to know, how is the food, the food products, the beverages that I consume, how are they produced and what is the impact on the environment? There's huge interest from consumers um, and particularly younger consumers, you know, like millennials and others, um, that we're seeing, they really want to know the environmental and other impacts of their food and the beverages that they're consuming. But also, companies have, are seeing huge risks in the products that they are both sourcing and producing. And they know that um, the resilience to of agriculture to what we're seeing as, you know, the impact of climate change um, around the world is really impacting their short-term and their long-term ability to actually source agricultural products. So they've been investing heavily in how do we make these systems more resilient so that we can ensure that we can continue to produce, whether it's cocoa or coffee or um, oats, right? We can ensure that we'll have a long-term supply that will keep those companies in business. So the, the private sector 
is really leaps and bounds um, ahead of what is happening in Washington right now. What you're seeing in Washington right now is a huge need and a desire to play catch-up, if you will. And we are really hopeful that anything the public government, the public sector and the government does really leverages what is already happening in the private sector and all the investments that they've been making in this space. There are two avenues of opportunity, and one of those is government-led, largely, I would expect, with taxpayer dollars, and other is industry and industry dollars that are going for a particular result. So, Debbie, what are the advantages of either, and what are the challenges and limitations that each other face without the other? Yes, well, so they're both, they're, they're challenges and limitations, but I think mostly here we're talking about opportunities, right? So with huge demand and actual activity coming from the private sector, I think the role of the government is to look at what what are we all what are we all trying to accomplish, right? What are the outcomes that we all share, and that's reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this case, right? Um, when you're thinking about agriculture, it means how do we enroll or get farmers and ranchers to actually participate in generating these outcomes on everyone's behalf. So there needs to be a huge government role here. Private markets and what the private sector is doing is really looking for new practices, right, new products that they can actually make claims to show what they're redu- reducing. One of the things the private or the public um, sector and, and the role of government can do is to pay for things that markets won't pay for or that industry won't pay for. So, for instance, protecting existing soil carbon stocks or paying early adopters who are really, you know, the peers from whom others learn out on the horizon, right? We need those um, participants who can't participate in the market because they're early adopters, they're innovators, to be paid. That is a great role of the federal government. We also need just um, the ongoing linkages to what the private sector is doing um, to USDA government programs, for instance. So whether it's EQIP or CSP or other conservation sharing programs, those provide a lot of upfront financing and um, practice changes, systems changes that are desirable by the private sector, you know, what they're seeking to affect as well. So working together so that we can ensure that we are all putting our shoulder to the wheel, ensuring that farmers and ranchers have the necessary opportunities, the the necessary risk coverage, the necessary financing, um, including upfront financing costs, right, is what we should be doing together. Um, and, And I think that's what we're really all focused on right now with Washington's, like, renewed interest in this effort is figuring out what's already happening, where do we need new investments, where do we have investments that the government itself can play that the private sector cannot. And then and then there's research, right? One typical role of the, the federal government is to cover research for something like agriculture. And there's a lot of research needs um, that I think we are advocating USDA and others take on to really help scale these um, outcomes from agriculture. What do you see in the Growing Climate Solutions Act that encourages you? Ah, two things that I think are incredibly important in that, and it's really the entirety of the act right now, is 
it would allow USDA to create a certification program for technical assistance providers who understand the markets and the market standards and the protocols so that they can really work with individual farmers and ranchers to help them understand their commitments if they're going to participate in the market. So that's the first thing. The second thing it does is it requires USDA or allows the USDA to create verifiers who are verified or trained to existing market verification requirements um, who are experts in agriculture. That's important because right now in the markets, the verifiers, um, the certified verifiers, there's not a lot of them who have agricultural expertise. And what happens is if you get a verifier for an agricultural project, they don't understand agriculture, it takes them a lot longer to verify a project, and that increases the cost dramatically. So having USDA actually maintain a slate of certified organizations or individuals who understand the market and the market standards and can provide those two verif- the two valuable roles, right, of, of technical assistance on the one end and then verification on the other um, could really help improve farmers and ranchers' experience and opportunities in these markets. So the Department of Agriculture has been receiving comments on its upcoming climate announcement. Uh, any speculation on what you might uh, think that the Secretary Vilsack would have to say or any hopes of what you might hear uh, from the Biden administration's USDA? Yeah, what I hope we will hear is that um, USDA is going to um, really leverage what the private sector is doing here and concentrate on their existing authorities, right, for how they can actually um, incentivize and work with farmers and ranchers to adopt the necessary systems changes to, you know, both increase soil carbon and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Whether or not that means that they will support you know, existing private markets and, and farmers' um, participation in those markets, I think remains to be seen. And I think there's an opportunity there. But I think there's so much USDA already has authorities to do, including tracking practice and, and practice changes over the horizon, collecting better data on soil carbon, right, providing research data that will enable all of us to better track what's happening. I think everything they can do within existing authorities um, and to beef up some of those is incredibly important. But my hope is that they will, again, look at what the private sector is doing and then figure out what is the really appropriate private or public role here to help scale beneficial outcomes from agriculture. So FACA suggested that a carbon bank at USDA that would finance some pilot programs and some pilot projects might be beneficial. Uh, is that already underway without government, or could government uh, could a government role of that type be beneficial? Yeah, I, I think that is um, a lot of that is underway. We have um, twenty pilot projects across the country, either already um, have launched or are in planning. Right, so there are pilot projects where we're actually working through all of this um, in time for ESMC's market launch. Right. I think the question would be, what would be the purpose of the pilot? Um, and, and that's a valid question, right? Is it to uh, figure out better ways to enroll farmers? Is it, is it a way to, for instance, check 
um, the impact of something like the Growing Climate Solutions Act, like to test those certified technical assistance providers, to test the verifiers who are, are experts in agricultural operations, right? I think it, it remains to be seen what the purpose of that would be, but I think pilots can be incredibly beneficial. Um, it, it, the devil will be in the details, right? What is, what is the purpose and the outcomes of those pilots? But I think pilots are always great. I speak to some farmers, and they're very encouraged for the opportunity to participate uh, in, in certainly uh, processes that would uh, improve our climate, uh, but also might give them a revenue opportunity. One of their areas of concern is data and who owns the data or has access to data about what's happening on their farm. Has that come up inside your circles? Oh, absolutely. We have very strong data privacy protections in our program, the farmer owns their data and the farmer owns their credits. And if, in fact, they want to sell their credits or share their data, we only do that with their written authorization. And I think that's an incredibly important point. What we're talking about here, um, Jeff, you know, we've, we've used a lot of terms about credits and, and other things. What we are talking about is literally a data-driven economy. Everything we are doing here is based on the data and the ability to show the data um, that can prove what we say we're selling is, we're selling or what we um, say is happening on the um, landscape is happening. That data is all farmer data, right? It's coming from the farmer and the rancher. So it's a data economy, data-driven economy. And we need to pay farmers and ranchers for that data. That's really all our market and I think other market approaches are doing is paying them for that data. If it's so important to all of us, we should pay them for it. It's ultimately what we're doing. So let's conclude in an area of research. Is there low-hanging fruit right now that we're on the cusp of being able to, to draw down? And are there bigger areas that government could certainly help in financing research that would provide answers that are much needed? Yes, I think the, the probably the most important area in the area of greatest interest right now is soil carbon. We need to measure and monitor soil carbon and changes in soil carbon at various depths, different geographies and across different production systems. That is very expensive. It's something everybody wants. It's something everybody needs. And that is a perfect role and opportunity for the government, right, because we know we have some, you know, Sergo databases. We have some USDA databases on, on soil carbon. They're dated. They're not very accurate. Um, we just need more accurate data there. So I think that is the most important point. The other one is that we know soil carbon migrates d- it down deeper into soil layers. We don't know a lot about the mechanisms, whether physical or whether chemical, right, whether earthworms help do that percolation of water. We need a better idea on that because what we assume is that if soil carbon is there one day when we test and it's not the next day, we assume it got lost into the atmosphere when, in fact, it may have migrated deeper down into the soil layers where it becomes more permanent, more durable. We need better information on that, and that will inform our ability to actually um, improve soil carbon sequestration across the entire country but also the entire world and then track it better over time, which is really what ultimately what we have to do. Well, Debbie Reed, we salute you on taking such an aggressive role in making this a, a better environment and a better planet and creating opportunity for not only your members but also for farmers and ranchers and foresters across the country. 
We want to thank you for taking time to be a part of this edition of Open Mic. Debbie, it is Open Mic, and today you have the last word. Thanks, Jeff, so much. I've really appreciated the conversation, and I really appreciate um, the fact that, you know, we're all in this together, and we're all working, I think, for the same beneficial outcomes, and there's a lot of work to do, lots of uh, work to go around, so I appreciate your um, taking the conversation out um, to farmers and renters as well. Our thanks to ESMC's Debbie Reed, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer is helping farmers produce sustainably to protect the environment and feed a growing world. Learn more at cropscience.bayer.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.